Welcome to Not Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack, or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Season 4, Episode 6, Fitchafuicha, Interwoven. Our guest storyteller is Jen Murphy. Jen is the award-winning founder of the Celtic School of Embodiment, and she joins us on the podcast for the third time. Jen is an anthropologist and a mythologist by background, and she's also a cultural dreamer whose work is dedicated to evolving the Irish mythic feminine through scholarship, the body, and the arts all in service to these times. I invite you to find her work at CelticEmbodiment.com. There you can learn more about her Celtic Women's Voyage offering. That's where I met Jen for the first time, and it's simply magical. Before we explore this week's story, I have a question for you. What about your stories? Whether it's a book project that wants to be birthed, deep, authentic writing to support your business, or a personal creative project you can't quite name yet, I'm here to support your process and help you get your words onto the page and into the world. I work with folks who are writing memoirs, chronicles of the spiritual journey, and books that explore healing and the imagination, even as they explore the toughest truths of life. I support entrepreneurs, especially coaches and therapists in private practice, who wish to weave their personal experiences with their professional knowledge and wisdom. Do you want to build a writing practice and develop the ideas you know you must share? Visit my website, marisagowdy.com, to learn more about my writing coaching services and set up a free 30-minute consultation. Well, I am so thrilled to welcome Jen Murphy back to the podcast for the third time. And as is our way, at Notwork Storytelling, we first ask the story to speak for itself, and then we'll explore together all the ways that it still matters and resonates. So Jen, will you tell us the story? I will, of course, Marisa. I'm delighted to be here for this sacred triple, I guess, this sacred triple spiral of our story weaving together. So this story is called Ficha Fuicha, Interwoven weaving the bones. Ebtide has come to me as to the sea. Old age makes me yellow. Though I may grieve thereat, it approaches its food joyfully. I am the old woman of bear. I created this world your world, by dropping rocks from my apron. You call me the Kyliak because you are a gale. And that will do for this tale. 
But I am beyond name. I am Maher, mother to all. I am Shan Waher Nifa, sacred grandmother. My grandchildren and great-grandchildren were peoples and races. In my tomb womb, I grew your mother's bones. While growing the seed of your bones, you, my amniotic treasure. Once in sumptuous fashion, my arms, they used to be around glorious kings. Now they are all but bony and thin. I am cold indeed. Every acorn is doomed to decay. After feasting by bright candles, to be in the darkness of an oratory. As the church fathers arrived on my shores, and I retreated to Schlievnakali, the witch's mountain, weaving my bones, a bone for each year that I have lived. And as old women do, I lament. In every bone that I weave, I remember my life as the goddess. When I was Hathor, the celestial cow, I tossed my lasso to catch the stars. My hair was this lasso that then tossed my king. With my eye, I beckoned he. With my body, I rebirthed him. My horns and his disc wear our brand. As Bowen, my womb became one with the bed of the red doctor, father of all, the peaked man, the horned god. I, the white cow, and he, my bull, stopped time with our union to birth the babe, a son who relit the night suckling on my cosmic light, milk that flowed across the heavens as the poets below this glory gazed. When I was water, the shores of the sea boiled over, and I, the river, ran down there. I streamed down there. I, Anahita, I with a thousand cells and a thousand channels, the breath of each of my cells, of each of my channels, was as much as a man could ride in 40 days, riding on his finest horse. As Shinnand, I walked Christ Widdershins around the well of life where the nine hazels of wisdom and inspiration grew. That is, the hazels of science and poetry. In the same hour, their fruit and their blossom and their foliage would break forth and then fall upon the well. Thereupon the water rose, a royal surge of germla, blue sovereignty, I liberated that well into a noble river, 
so that the wisdom of the other world could flow into you. Ah, wisdom. One time I had a friar and his novice come to my tomb womb, seeking to steal my wisdom, demanding to know how old I am. The cheek to demand of the goddess to hunt for my age. I saw within them that which must die so that they could become more fully alive. I have brought many in ego death, weaving my bones. From my scowling brow as Kali, I sprang forth frightful of countenance and armed with my sword and noose, bearing a skull-topped staff, adorned with my garland of skulls and clad in a tiger's skin. My emaciated flesh appalling, my mouth gaping, my lolling tongue horrifying, my sunken eyes glowing red. I filled the four quarters of the sky with my roars and shapeshifted into the death crow, gnawing at noble necks, blood spurting in the first fray, hacked flesh, battle madness, blades and bodies. I stirred the armies to confusion as 100 warriors fell dead of fright. Me, the red-mouthed badov, screeching over the silver shields in the gap of battle. As I rose higher on my fearsome wings, then rushed to destroy the land, descending like a raging storm, howling like a hurricane, screaming like a tempest, I, Inanna, thundering, raging, ranting, drumming, whiplashing whirlwind. At times it drove me mad, all of this bloody work to evolve the human soul. Once in a fever of lunacy, I rose aloft and flew to Schlieve Mish, Mish's mountain, my mountain, and grew on me whiskers and hair of such length that they scoured the ground behind me. The nails on my feet and hands curved inwards that no man or beast encountered me, but was torn apart on the spot. Alas, I did not tear this friar and his novice apart. I said, you want to know how old I am? Go on up to my attic so. There's an ox bone up there for every year that I have been alive. So up the novice was sent, the poor fool. And he counted each bone until the decay of old age stained him. And still he'd not made a dent in my bones. For he did not understand that I existed before all. I was the firstborn among all those who came to be. I, Sophia, the invisible one within the all. I descended to the midst of the underworld and I shone down upon the darkness. I am mother, 
I am light. I cry out in everyone and they recognize my voice since its seed indwells them. Have you heard me cry from within your seed? Do you remember me? As Bridget, the female sage, woman of wisdom, Bridget, the goddess whom the poet seers worshipped, for very great and very splendid was my application to the arts. Therefore, they called me the goddess of poets. I, goddess of the cultural dream time. But my sisters, Bridget, the female physician, lady of leechcraft, Bridget, the female smith, lady of ore. And with my oar, I forged an opal eye, my right eye, that was then taken from me to be sold for a land that will be forever mine. Today, it's riches your patriarchs love and not people. As for me, when I lived, it was people I loved. You need to wake up. At the foot of your bed, I will stand as Baobo and draw aside my garments and show you the shape of my body, which you deem improper to name, the growth of puberty. And with my own hands, strip myself under my breasts. Perhaps then you will laugh and laugh and laugh and you will return to your senses. One time I brought a king to his senses. I arrived at court with my two shins as long as a weaver's beam. My pubic hair extended to my knee, my lips upon the side of my head. I put one shoulder against the doorpost and cast a baleful eye upon the king who asked, Well then, woman, what do you see first if you are a seer? I'll tell you what I told him and what I'm telling you now. I will rise and you will see me return. I am the feminine. I am always on the side of life. I love life. I love. Oh, Jen, that was magical. It was just the cascade of voices and images and the weaving together of the all. And I adore the fact that so many of the stories that we're telling this season as they're weaving together with the I will rise, that refrain keeps coming through so many women's lips that it just my heart just expands to hear it come from yours as well. So thank you for this gorgeous, gorgeous spinning. Thank you so much, Marisa. And actually the words, I will rise, you know, and you'll see me return are actually taken from Sinead O'Connor's song, Troy, because Mm -hmm. I wrote this story after her passing. I had begun it before and it took on a whole new form in light of that, you know. Mm. And then I also want to mention Marion Woodman because it's a quote from her at the end as well in terms of the feminine 
always being on the side of life. Oh. And there, that just so highlights the ways in which we are, it's at once sort of standing on the shoulders of the four mothers and also being in conversation with the four mothers. And just that, again, it's it's the fichifuicha of all the different stories and wisdoms coming together and crediting the source in that sense of the sacred source and also being part of the source and it flowing from you and through you as it does in this story. Thank you. Yeah, I love that, you know, and it really is a weaving, like how the story came about was I was doing some study with the Anima Mundi School Mm. and two incredible storytellers there, Farnak and Gowrie. And we were really exploring the feminine within prevalent myths within the Western psyche, you know, so you see there you have Persephone and Demeter with Baobo. You also have more obscure goddesses like Anahita, who has Persian and Zoroastrian roots. And for me, as always, like you, Marisa, I just really desired to bring the Irish or wider Celtic feminine into this space because for me, like all mythology emerges from the same place, from, you know, the collective unconscious, which is that part of the psyche where we inherit image around what it means to be a human being. And Celtic and Irish mythology maybe hasn't had the same opportunity to express as other mythical traditions in modern scholarship, essentially. So that was one of the places that it came from. But also, yeah, just really wanting to show how connected mythical traditions are because, again, they come from the place of the unconscious, the image making place. And I guess there was a third element as well in the story for me is a full bellied expression of the feminine. Like it's mm-hmm. anchored in the great mother archetype, right? And I use the Kailiak in this story, right? To express that our Maher and our Shanwa, her Nefa, our sacred grandmother. But for me, all of these mythical goddesses descend from that archetype of the great mother they're all facets of her and so within this story we can see the many facets of the goddess but the many facets of us Mm. we can all move in that energy of be it mish or the marigan or kali or sophia bridget Mm. we ended with sheila and a gig so yeah, that was also really coming through in this story as well. Yeah. I mean, there's a part of me that I was, I was trying to record each goddess as she crossed the stage. And then part of me was like, just put down the pen. Don't try to keep a scorecard. Simply sort of be in the weave of it all. Just curious, do you know how many different beings you called into in this story? <laughs> No, I've never, I actually haven't counted them. I mean, it's so obvious, but I haven't. I don't know, maybe 14, 15? Wow. And I hesitate to ask the question because at some level it absolutely doesn't matter. And I really (laughs) wanted to set down my like good student self, you know, that one is like, oh, I could take all the notes and I'll ace the exam at the end and I'll make the 
professor so happy if I can say, I <laughs> name check everybody you dropped. And then in other ways, it's just that it's that fascination of just being able to be in what they offer and that saying of what if we could set down our mind that needs to intellectualize and say, oh, I understand this and just let the heart be in the flow with it. Yeah, I love that because in that way, it almost doesn't matter where they emerge from. And they're almost more of the place that they come from in terms of the mystery when you don't Mm -hmm. name them in a way, you know? So yeah, I love that. And it feels like there's a radicalness in this where you really feel like you accepted an invitation that came from your own depths and from the great mother that said, call these stories all together. Because I know that there is that true sense of like, it is all, there's a singular story with a million different facets. And we also live in a moment right now that's very focused on understanding the origins of certain stories and being careful of appropriating or calling in traditions which are not ours to the degree that I think we become paralyzed because we're afraid of saying the wrong thing and using a story that isn't ours. And the way that you do this with such soul and presence, I just find just so remarkable and beautiful and just something that my heart needs, that I think our spirits need to sort of say, yes, we have these distinct expressions. And there is also this quest for the oneness and the union that feels very original in some cosmic sense, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does make sense. And I guess there's a couple of things that are coming through in response. So the first is around when we do the work to reconnect with our mythical lineage, right? So we all have human ancestors, but we also, anyone who's listening to this podcast knows very well, we also have mythical ancestors. And when we do that work to reconnect and reroute in our own mythical lineage, I feel that it facilitates the space, the embodied space to share Mm cross-culturally and to engage in the cross-cultural story. And a second thing to mention there as well is, to be honest, this story is part of a longer story of a question that I asked myself a time ago. And it was, well, what if I was created in the image of the great mother, of the goddess, of the feminine? Who would that give me permission to be, right? Because, Marisa, I was raised... Now, I'm not on the fault of my parents per se, right? But within a culture that I was told that I was created in the image of the masculine principle mm-hmm. or indeed an aspect of the feminine. So an aspect of the feminine that was very one-sided, chaste, pure, mm-hmm. that I couldn't even see my own mother, my own grandmother, never mind me in that image, you know? Mm-hmm. and. To, to go back to the unconscious, like mythic images have an immense impact on the cultural psyche. The image is, it's like the first psychic form, you know, mm. it's like how the psyche communicates with us is through image. So for me, everything really begins with the image. It's like that quote from 
James Hillman, I was listening to a lecture of his recently where he said that our dreams are prior to our thinking, right? So what he means, the dream, the image is prior to thinking, right? And I don't mean just that image in terms you have to be a visual person. I mean image in terms of spark, Mm -hmm. in terms of communication from the psyche. And, you know, we see in all mythical well, not, I don't say all, um, but in many mythical traditions where again, the creation myth begins with the word because the word takes the image and uses mm-hmm. language to bring it into form. And that's where the likes of, in the Irish tradition, the Eishtana, you know, the people of the arts, the many skilled ones would have taken what was coming from Psyche those images and brought them into form through metaphor for the community because image communicates in metaphor, you know, and so it has to hold it all. It has to hold the many meanings and the mystery and so forth. And so when you don't have an image of the feminine or where an image is taken and there's no metaphor anymore, it's just translated into doctrine, right, which is what I was raised on, just images as fact and as doctrine, like no metaphor, no mystery, no Mm -hmm. space for exploration, then we can't see ourselves. And this really troubles me because images for me as well, it's through the image that I get glimpses of my soul, Marisa. So I can't see my soul if I can't connect with, with the mythic and I'm being told just not even to try and connect. So I'm going to, yeah, I'll close that now, but I hope that makes sense in terms of just the importance of that image. And that's why that story was coming through as well. Oh, there's so much in what you said. And I just want to, you are someone I know who asks the best questions. And I've been so fortunate to be in programs with you where, you know, you just asked us to go be with our future self and have a conversation with her. And that changed my life. I know I've told you that before, but this feels like in the same way, and perhaps even it's even more of a profound question is what if I were created in the image of the great mother, what permission would I have? And what would that give me permission to be? And I'm I'm sort of paraphrasing what you said, but I just want to be with that question and that sense of, and in your quest to say, but I want to be able to see my soul. And obviously we've had spiritual traditions over centuries and millennia, and we have a whole world of folk who talk about spiritual things all the time in all the places, but it feels somehow so deeply profound to hear you articulate those questions in that way. And it's a permission giving for all of us just to sort of, to see that broadly and to look that deeply and to just do that intimate work of the self. And I'm just so grateful to you for that. I can tell you that when I asked myself that question, you know, and it took me to the late 30s years to ask myself that question, right? Mm -hmm. I really wish I had someone had encouraged me to ask that question a lot earlier. Mm -hmm. But I sobbed my eyes out, Marisa, Mm -hmm. when the question came through. I was on my knees sobbing. Because I couldn't believe that I could see myself, you know, and it's not even about 
me as a woman, it's beyond that. It's about Mm -hmm. no matter what gender identity we hold, seeing the feminine, seeing the full scope of potential that I have, you know, Mm -hmm. as opposed to being just told that I live according to one image. Yes. When you talk about images and you really invite us into the sense of you know, what happens when we're given one static form that says, go be this, this is what fits into the slot best. And the real invitation where we truly find ourselves is in the vastness and the uncertainty and the mystery and how antithetical that is to what we're told we ought to be looking for, what we're told ought to be our definition of success. And so it just makes me just realize more and more as we name the patriarchal systems, we name these things that tell us, well, you need to make sure that you've got the finances straight and you've got your retirement sorted and you know how you're going to pay your mortgage. Those things need to be certain. And yet so much of what you're offering us here too is that sense of the great blanket and the great womb that is the uncertainty and the mystery and that which we don't know about ourselves. Yeah, yeah, the full potential, you know, and I guess it also speaks to another form of reality. Within patriarchy, we're living in one form of reality mm-hmm. and that's presented to us as the only reality Whereas when you work with the mythic imagination or even go into your dream world, there's an equal reality there in the sense Mm -hmm. of a reality of equal importance. But we just treat that reality as, oh, yeah, my dreams are just hodgepodge or compensation for the day. It always has to be brought back to this reality. But Mm -hmm. what if we were to perceive the mythic imagination and the dream world as important realities in their own right and weave them then with this reality because that's what's going to for me I often (laughs) kind of visualize this idea of having like a big weaver's needle and Mm. using that to puncture holes in this reality you know in my everyday and remind myself no this is not the only reality there are other ways of accessing information. And, you know, I feel as well, Marisa, if you were talking to one of our ancestors, like say a fella, like a poet seer, they'd be like, yeah, of course. This kind of separation just didn't exist for them. Like you think about even the practice of Imbasferosni, which I know is the divine illumination and inspiration, but it was also a technical term for a ritual act, you know, so you mm-hmm. are going in, the fella is going into that ritual act to access information, to enter the cultural dream time and bring back information in service to the tua, to the tribe, to the community. Imagine if we were all doing that. And imagine if all of the islands of the other world were not just a replacement for what folks dreamed about because they didn't have a Netflix subscription, but instead had some, <laughs> had, had a reality to them that was every bit as real as the land of Ireland beneath their feet. It was the islands to the West have their own, if they were not 
actual rocks out in the ocean. They had a spiritual density and a dream density that was a place where this the soul could go. Because we know, I mean, our thoughts are unseen, right? And we're very comfortable with thought. We have to do lots of that. You get you get lots of degrees to commend how much good thought we've been doing. And it seems as if the ancestors just knew a way of saying, yes, and those are real. And here are the stories and here are how to access them. And this is what happens when you go there. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like it's one great model for psyche. Mm. of how to live within the conscious awake world and then to travel off into the unconscious Mm -hmm. to access new forms of information and the unconscious is the vast sea of all human all we've inherited and all potentiality so of course they're going to have warnings about that around how to stay safe traveling Mm -hmm. into that world so we can bring back what is needed Mm-hmm. And that you're not going to end up the risk, for example, of like inflation, where you think that you are the goddess then or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's all about right. being in partnership, right? Because reciprocity and being in partnership is critical to Irish mm-hmm. folklore, you know, and Irish mm-hmm. tradition. You always, there's so much, as you know, warnings around mm-hmm. what happens if you take too much mm-hmm. and you aren't in reciprocity with the worlds, with the unconscious or the other world or whatever we want to call it. And that seems, I'd love to hear a bit more about your process. You you mentioned when you first asked yourself that question about being created in the image of the great mother, that that brought you into just soul racking sobs. But I'd love to hear a bit more about you as mythologist who makes this work so real and so embodied. What the process was like for you in calling together all of these different goddesses in the story And knowing you've written this some time ago, how the stories have kept working on you and you've worked them through your life. Yeah, it's such a beautiful question. I guess what's really critical for me, and I would encourage if anyone who just is listening in, if you would like to do this as a practice, I would really encourage you to play back the story. And what I do a lot, Marisa, is... So all my work is done on the ground, on the floor. I'm always rolling around the floor. I just can't sit still, you know, when things like this are coming through. And it takes a lot of patience because I have to really sit in the nebulous. Like Mm -hmm. I have to like, and accept that I'm not going to know some things. And even what comes through me and what I share in the story, maybe I won't even fully understand. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. So what I do is I will usually move through my body, you know, and you've experienced this by dropping kind of a mythical ancestor, whoever it is, like say it's in, in the case of this story, it could be like Inanna or it could be Shinand or whoever it is and move with that energy through my body. So taking an image from that story and moving with it in my body or A really accessible way to do this as well is to listen to the story and just respond through symbol or image, right? So get out the crayons, the coloring pencils, even just a pen, right? If that's all that you have and listen to the story and see what image or what symbol bubbles up for you, what's emerging from the psyche and just draw 
your response. Almost like giving your hand a consciousness that the hand do what it wants and just draw your response. And then over time, work with that image. And what I mean in working with that image, I mean, tending to it. So the image might expand to show new possibilities. You might use that image in other forms. You might use clay or whatever to work with the image, or you're just watching out for that image to be mirrored back to you through your dream world, through synchronicities. And also what I often do is write words around the image. So associations, metaphors, again, just Mm -hmm. like seeing what's coming through in terms of what it may mean, but allowing that to unfold over time. So, yeah, so that would be really kind of just some of the ways that I would work with story and allow it to come through. Again, I just love how you take us out of the intellectual scorecard of who said who and what what goddess did what, and instead remind us to be so fully embodied and in that, the symbolic realm of this work. Yeah, I mean, I started off doing a degree 20 years ago you know, in medieval Irish and Celtic studies. And I can tell you, I was hung up on who said what and who did what and did the monks make it all up and all of it, right? And that still lingers in me, Mm -hmm. that kind of patriarchal, like conditioning. Mm -hmm. But what's liberating is, like in a way, Marisa, it doesn't matter, right? So say the monks made the whole thing up. You know, let's just say the Christian monks who wrote our mythology fabricated everything, Right. It doesn't actually matter in a way because they are accessing the unconscious of the land when it's still coming through them. You know, Mm -hmm. now I don't believe that they did make it up, but I'm just playing devil's advocate here. So it's beyond that debate because it's about the unconscious. So Mm -hmm. in a way, if we go back beyond that, it doesn't really matter. Now, I know scholars wouldn't (laughs) agree with me on that, but that to me is liberating. And it gives us such freedom for it to evolve and get beyond the arguments. Right. And yeah, I mean, and and it's that sense too, and I'm I'm checking myself. It's like, okay, where is my inner patriarch saying, but we get to break the rules because we know them. And knowing that there's some value in the sense of saying, well, we're rooted in a tradition. We've learned the stories. We've read the footnotes and gone for the different versions. And then we consciously say, And here's an evolution of this story that I've crafted. And by the way, you can go back and find this manuscript. And there's a part of me that, because, you know, you and I have a similar education in much of this, and that I say there was a lot of good in that and I can do what I can now because I knew all that then and I let it break my head and tried to fold in all these different names and dates and things. And yet there's another way in which it says, wow, and that's another way that the gatekeepery ways of the patriarchy are continuing to have their hold. And and then the other side is, but we don't want to make it up wholesale because then we it loses meaning when we throw everything into a soup and don't remember it has its constituent parts. And so I feel like this is constantly the this is kind of the spin cycle I'm always in in trying to find my footing and also really flow with things. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. You know, it is important to do the scholarship. And what really helps me is I feel into, like, I see this as an apprenticeship for my entire life, right? Mm. And I look at, say, the filly and I think, okay, so the filly, 
in order to reach the highest level of Philly, right, which is the Ulav, which is the modern Irish word for a professor, they uh, studied for, they honed their craft for up to 20 years, right, which was pretty good going back in, in that age, right, where people likely didn't have the same kind of lifeline that we do. So for me, I look at the Philly and I think they were scholars, right? They did the work. They looked like, I mean, in our kind of like what you're speaking to there, you know, looking at the sources and learning the stories and doing the Mm -hmm. scholarly piece, right? And doing your due diligence there. But they also went into the cultural dream time and went beyond that, you know? And I guess what I'm trying to get across as well is that today, scholarship and magic are completely separate Mm. but they weren't for our ancestors and what I'd like to see is infusing more of the magic more of the possibility almost more of the feminine into Mm -hmm. scholarship because then we have a foot in both worlds yeah like you don't want to just completely go into the unconscious because you'll you'll never come back out you'll just get sucked in whereas we don't want to stay too rigid in this world either so doing both. And I really, I mean, I'm very grateful for the experience that I had. 19 year old me, I'm very grateful to her. Right. <laughs> like, like all the time she spent studying hagiography and all of this, you know? Yes. So yes. If listeners could see my grin, I'm just sort of cheering on Jen's sacred marriage of the magical and the scholarly because yes, just a thousand times. Yes. <laughs> So I'm curious, Jen, is there any specific goddess or being from the story who feels most potent to you right now? You might want to just explore a little bit more with me. Wow. What a question, you know, because I kind of feel like it's almost like a sense, Marisa, that I can't pull them out of the story Mm. in the sense that at the moment in my life, they are fichafuicha. Yeah. They are interwoven. Yeah. And so when I see one, I see them all. Mm. Yeah. So I'm continuing to work with them all and just allow the story to, to continue to weave. I don't even know if that story is complete, to be honest. We'll see. Well, what a gorgeous answer. And it makes me reflect on the sense of saying, wait, would you ever walk up to a weaver and saying, what's your favorite thread in that cloak? Can I tug on it? And that's madness. And that just feels like it also reveals so much of the way in which we've gotten so accustomed to all of our, the unique facets of story. We've fallen in love with these constituent parts. And it's very hard to be with the whole and be with the all. That I recognize how even within me, I'm resisting that sense of saying, because in the face of your story, I just sort of marvel and go, wow. And that's uncomfortable for me because here I am hosting a podcast. I need to make sure we have more individual pieces to pull out. And it's hard to speak of, here is this great glowing cloak. Witness it, be with it. And maybe at that point, there's a space for silence and it's hard to keep talking because we have to just feel the wrap of this cloak around us. Yeah, what a beautiful analogy. It's almost like 
Sophia then speaking, the one within the all. Mm. Yeah, just having silence on a podcast, like what a novel idea. What a novel idea. I think I could count to four before I had to recognize I needed to speak again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jen, I am so eternally grateful for your work, for your presence, for your magic, for the questions you ask that have no immediate answers, but are just the sort of questions one needs to live with and live into to feel both the sacred comfort and the sacred discomfort that comes up because there's so much wisdom held in all of those in-between spaces. Thank you so much. And I love that phrase, the sacred discomfort. Mm. Yeah, because it is. It's And I can feel it in my body. I know what that feels like. But I guess over time, it's Allowing ourselves to hold it without trying to throw it out of the body, which I do so often as well. You know, I want, I want to know. But yeah, there's something so profoundly beautiful in the not knowing. It's a wonder. And that to me is, that's the key to an enchanted life. Oh, well, Jen, thank you so much for bringing us this story, this great cascade of names and beings and stories and essences. I'm so grateful. Where can people find you and keep journeying with you in your unique way of being with these mythic ancestors? Yeah, so thank you, Marisa. And it's a privilege as always. This is my favorite podcast, you know, and what you are doing in terms of contributing to the evolution of, yeah, Irish culture, like this space is the cultural dream time. So I just want to reflect that back to you and just say, it really is, your work is phenomenally important, you know, and it's seen. And yeah, where you can find me then is just at CelticEmbodiment.com is my website or on Instagram at Celtic Embodiment. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, Jen, thank you for opening the portal as ever. Such a gift. Thank you, Jen. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marisa. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way... Everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season three and beyond. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub, Myth is Medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach, at marisagowdy.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billyandbeth.com.
Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.